Why should anyone care about a book written 700 years ago in medieval Spain, composed in Aramaic, a language no longer spoken by hardly anyone in the world? Why would anyone read a book that's intentionally difficult and cryptic? Why? Because the Zohar challenges our understanding of life and dares us to transform ourselves. It shatters our childish images of God and reveals a God called infinity. The Zohar insists that God is not primarily someone up in heaven pulling the strings. No, God is the energy that animates the universe. God is not primarily father. God is also mother, equally male and female. And it's up to us human beings to unite the male and female halves of God. How? We'll get to that soon. Let's begin by asking what is Kabbalah and what is the Zohar? Kabbalah. The root kabel means to receive. So Kabbalah means receiving or that which has been received. So on one hand, Kabbalah refers to tradition, wisdom received and treasured from the past, wisdom handed down from teachers to students over hundreds and thousands of years. In this sense, Kabbalah is old, in fact, ancient. But on the other hand, receiving is something we can do right now, opening up to the spiritual dimension of reality. So Kabbalah also implies something current, immediate, present. If we become truly receptive, wisdom appears spontaneously, unprecedented, taking us by surprise. Kabbalah demands that we become open to new insights, to new approaches to God and to tradition. So you could say Kabbalah is both new and ancient simultaneously. In fact, the Zohar, the masterpiece of Kabbalah, calls its teachings milin chadetin atikin, new ancient words. It's this combination of new insight and ancient tradition that makes Kabbalah so intriguing and so vital for us today. Kabbalah emerged as a distinct movement in medieval Europe in the 12th and 13th centuries. But the mystical stream within Judaism is certainly much older. What is mysticism? A difficult question. One simple definition is direct contact with God. The mystic is not satisfied with simply carrying out God's commands, with fulfilling the requirements of religion. She or he wants direct experience of the divine. We certainly find evidence of such experience long before the Kabbalah. For example, right in the Bible, Moses encounters God at the burning bush, where he discovers the secret nature of God's being. Eheyeh asher eheyeh, I am that I am. This revelation prefigures what eventually becomes a mystical refrain. God cannot be defined. The prophet Isaiah sees God enthroned in the temple in Jerusalem, accompanied by fiery angels 
who call out to one another, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his presence. The most graphic account in the Bible of a vision of God is undoubtedly the opening chapter of Ezekiel. Standing by a river in Babylon, the prophet sees a throne whirling through heaven, accompanied by four winged creatures darting to and fro. On the throne is, quote, a figure with the appearance of a human being, unquote, surrounded by radiance like a rainbow. Ezekiel's vision of God seated on the throne eventually became the archetype of Jewish mystical ascent. Individual Jews who sought a mystical experience used Ezekiel's account as their model. Among those who followed in his footsteps were some of the leading figures of rabbinic Judaism, including Rabbi Akiva. The mystical journey was dangerous, requiring intense ascetic preparation, precise knowledge of secret passwords in order to be admitted to the various heavenly palaces guarded by menacing angels. Among the prerequisites were knowledge of Torah, observance of the mitzvot, and ethical purity. The final goal was to attain a vision of that divine figure on the throne. Based on these biblical and rabbinic roots, Kabbalah emerged in the 12th and 13th centuries. Its birthplace was Provence, that fertile site of a vibrant Jewish community, a center of learning and culture that encompassed rabbinic law, philosophy, and mysticism. Here we find small groups of Jewish mystics who gathered earlier traditions, developed techniques of meditation, and began to reimagine God in new and startling ways. From Provence, Kabbalah spread southward, spilling over the Pyrenees into Spain, and it's here in the 13th century in Christian Spain that Kabbalah crystallized. Its masterpiece was a book called Sefer HaZohar. What is the Zohar? The title means radiance or splendor, based on a verse in the book of Daniel, chapter 12. V'hamaskilim yazhiru kezohar harakia. The enlightened will shine like the Zohar, the radiance of the sky. The Zohar seemed to appear out of nowhere. Around the year 1280, a Spanish Kabbalist named Moses de Leon began circulating little booklets to his fellow spiritual seekers. These were the first installments, you might say, of the Zohar, written in a lyrical Aramaic, sparkling with invented words, rich symbolism, erotic imagery. The tales and teachings were esoteric, yet enchanting. Moses de Leon claimed that he was merely the scribe, copying from an ancient manuscript. The original had supposedly been composed in the circle of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, Shimon the son of Yochai, a famous disciple of Rabbi Akiva, who lived over a millennium earlier in the second century in the land of Israel. According to rabbinic tradition, this, this ancient Rabbi Shimon hid from the Roman authorities in a cave for 13 years. Kabbalists imagined that the Zohar was conceived in that cave. 
then somehow the text made its way from second century Galilee to 13th century Spain, and Moses de Leon was making copies available. Why did Moses de Leon attribute this masterpiece to the ancient Rabbi Shimon, who lived 1,100 years later? Okay, picture this. We have Moses de Leon basically composing the Zohar in the 13th century in Spain, but he never admitted that he was the author. He claimed he was copying from an ancient text that went back 1,100 years earlier to this Rabbi Shimon, son of Yochai, in the second century. Why did he attribute this masterpiece to the ancient Rabbi Shimon? Perhaps so that its radical ideas would be accepted. For example, the notion of a feminine half of God, which I'll discuss briefly tonight and in more detail tomorrow evening. This, you might say, is the boldest contribution of the Kabbalists, a revival of the ancient myth of the goddess, supposedly expunged from Judaism. If Moses de Leon had come out and said, God is a woman, it may not have gone over so well. <laughs> but now, lo and behold, it was the ancient Rabbi Shimon who was describing Shekhinah, celebrating her exploits, tracing her romance with her divine male partner. The guise of ancient authority was certainly one factor in Moses de Leon's decision to write pseudopographically, attributing the Zohar to this ancient Rabbi Shimon. But perhaps Moses de Leon, writing in Spain, actually believed that he could commune with this ancient Rabbi Shimon, that he could channel ancient wisdom. And then you might say there's a more down-to-earth motivation. We know of this from another ancient source, an account of something supposedly said by the wife of Moses de Leon. Moses de Leon died in the year 1305, and he left his widow without much money. A rich Kabbalist offered her a large sum if she would show him the original manuscript from which de Leon claimed to have copied the Zohar. Moses de Leon's widow, however, said that she could not produce that manuscript because her late husband, quote, wrote what he did out of his own mind. And when I saw him writing without any material before him, I used to say to him, why do you tell everybody that you're copying from a book when you have no book and you're writing out of your own head? Wouldn't it be better for you to say that the work was your own creation? You'd get more credit. According to this report, her husband, Moses de Leon, replied, if I told them my secret and that what I wrote was my own invention, they wouldn't listen to my words. They wouldn't pay anything for them because they'd say I made it all up. But now when they hear, when they hear that I'm copying passages for them from the Zohar written by the ancient Rabbi Shimon, they pay a lot of money for them, as you can see. This story may be an invention, but it's likely that financial considerations were also a factor in Moses de Leon's narrative scheme. By attributing his work to the ancient Rabbi Shimon, Moses de Leon convinced many readers to accept and respect the Zohar. Few dared to challenge the authority of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and gradually the Zohar became HaZohar HaKadosh, the Holy Zohar, the canonical text of Kabbalah. Almost all of subsequent Kabbalah, really all of subsequent Kabbalah, is based on the teachings and the poetry of the Zohar. Not until relatively recent times 
did Moses de Leon's actual role become clear. Far more than a scribe, he was the composer of the Zohar, though he certainly drew on earlier material, and he may have collaborated with other Kabbalists. Composed in the 13th century, yet ascribed to ancient sources, this is another example of milin chadetin atikin, new ancient words. What a perfect oxymoron, fresh and creative, yet conveying eternal wisdom. The Zohar, you see, has a dialectical relationship with tradition. It's firmly rooted in tradition, but it thrives on new discovery. We often find interpretations in the Zohar introduced as follows. This verse has been discussed, but come and see. This verse has been established, but come and see. This dialectical approach is vital for us today. We need to cultivate our commitment to Torah, but at the same time, we need to be open to new insights, to new approaches. That's the only way a tradition remains relevant and vibrant. Most of the Zohar consists of a mystical commentary on the Torah. This often surprises people. The Zohar is not a systematic book of Kabbalah, chapter 1, God, chapter 2, Torah, nothing like that. The Zohar is simply a commentary on the Torah, beginning from Genesis and moving through the five books of the Torah and then other passages of the Bible as well. But the Zohar doesn't just comment on the Torah. It penetrates the surface of the biblical text, always searching for something more profound. The message is always, don't be content with a simple meaning. Question the text. Questioning becomes a supreme value. Chapter after chapter, verse after verse, the Zohar surprises and challenges the reader. Every biblical verse is simply the starting point, a springboard for the imagination. The Zohar is a biblical commentary, but at the same time, it's a kind of mystical novel. Rabbi Shimon and his colleagues are wandering through the hills of Galilee, sharing secrets of Torah, now and then they encounter strange characters on the road. A child amazes them with wisdom. A beggar enriches them with precious teachings. A cantankerous old donkey driver who seems to be a total idiot turns out to be a sage in disguise. The Zohar is really a medieval experiment in fiction. It may also be the most influential Jewish book written in medieval Europe. It's a hidden treasure of Western civilization, just recently rediscovered and now being reclaimed. Think of Dante and the Divine Comedy. Dante wrote just a few decades after the Zohar. And the Zohar is also journeying through realms of heaven and hell. One of its central themes, like Dante, is the mystery of the eternal feminine, both human and divine. Think of Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. Chaucer wrote about a century after the Zohar. And the Zohar also we find a kind of pilgrimage, devotees of Torah journeying to discover Shekhinah, the feminine divine presence. As in Chaucer, these travels are enriched by tales. Think finally of Don Quixote, written in Spain, about 300 years after the Zohar. 
the rabbis of the Zohar are also engaged in a fantastic quest to vanquish evil, to mend the world. If Don Quixote is a knight errant, a wandering knight, then the hero of the Zohar, Rabbi Shimon, is a saint errant, a holy man wandering in search of wisdom. What do the Zohar and Kabbalah say about God? First of all, they invent a new name for God, Ein Sof, two Hebrew words that literally mean there is no end. God, according to Kabbalah, is the infinite or infinity. Let me pause here for a moment and ask you to take a look at the sheet. And if you don't have one with you, I'm sure someone next to you does. Later, we're going to look briefly at this chart of the 10 sifirot, 10 aspects of God. But right now, I want to focus for a moment on Ein Sof, the infinite. Where is the infinite on this page? You might say the white space surrounding everything and then stretching out in all directions. Because Ein Sof, as I just said, means infinity. Let's look at uh, the first page of text after that, after that chart. And this is actually a passage not from the Zohar. We'll come back to the Zohar soon. This is from a later Kabbalist who wrote in the 16th century, a man named Moses Cordovero. And here's how he describes what Ein Sof means and how it compares to our usual understanding of God. An impoverished person thinks that God is an old man with white hair sitting on a wondrous throne of fire that glitters with countless sparks. As the Bible states, the ancient of days sat, the hair on his head like clean fleece, his throne flames of fire. Imagining this in similar fantasies, the fool corporealizes God. He falls into one of the traps that destroy faith. His awe of God is limited by his imagination. But if you are enlightened, you know God's oneness. You know that the, the divine is devoid of bodily categories. These can never be applied to God. Then you wonder, astonished, who am I? I am a mustard seed in the middle of the sphere of the moon, which itself is a mustard seed within the next sphere. So it is with that sphere and all it contains in relation to the next sphere. So it is with all the spheres, one inside the other, and all of them are a mustard seed within the further expanses. All of these are a mustard seed within further expanses. Your awe is invigorated. The love in your soul expands. Why does he say a mustard seed? Because that is the smallest seed. So if you start, don't start with God. God is too much to imagine. Start with yourself. Think, I'm tiny compared to the planet. And the planet is tiny compared to the solar system. And the solar system is tiny compared to the galaxy. And God is beyond all of those spheres. God is the infinity that includes everything. Now that could lead you to think that I'm lost, I'm abandoned, I'm, I'm swimming in this ocean of infinity. But if infinity is really infinite, it's not something just out there. It includes what's here. It includes us as well. So the mystical realization is that I'm part of the infinite. As a mathematician would tell you, if you divide infinity by anything, you still get infinity. So we are a tiny fraction of infinity, but we're part of that infinite reality. Let's look at Cordovero's next passage. The essence of divinity is found in every single thing. Nothing but it exists. 
since it causes everything to be, no thing can live by anything else. It enlivens them. Its existence exists in each existent. You may not have seen that word recently, but existent simply means an existing thing. So God is that which animates everything. That's really, I think, one of the aspects of mystical theology. God is not someone up there pulling the strings. God is the energy that animates the cosmos. Do not attribute duality to God. Let God be solely God. Now he describes what he means by attributing duality. If you suppose that Ein Sof, okay, the ultimate divine reality, if you suppose that Ein Sof emanates or flows until a certain point, and that from that point on is outside of it, you have dualized. Okay, you've split God into, you've split the universe into two, God and the rest. According to Cordovero, that's a mistake. Perish the thought. Realize rather that Ensof exists in each existent. Do not say this is a stone and not God. Perish the thought. Rather, all existence is God, and the stone is a thing pervaded by divinity. This is really shocking in a Jewish text to think that a stone could be divine. After all, Judaism begins by rejecting the worship of stone idols. Cordovero is not going to bow down to an idol. What he's saying is that don't exclude God from anything. If God is really infinite, God animates, God permeates everything, and that's his mystical understanding of, of Ein Sof. So this, I would say, is one of the great contributions of Kabbalah, to insist that God is not grandfather sitting on the throne. God is infinite energy coursing through us and through the universe. That, you could say, is one thing we could learn from Kabbalah. All our various names for God are inadequate. Ultimately, God transcends every definition. God is beyond everything and includes everything. But human beings feel a need to attach names to whatever they encounter, to try to capture it mentally. So the Kabbalists teach us that our names for God have to be stretched and expanded. For example, ultimately God is beyond gender. But if we picture God as masculine, we have to balance that patriarchal image with the feminine. Now, I plan tonight to devote really an entire talk or most of a talk to Shekhinah, the divine feminine. But I want to just touch on it now. And if those of you who come back tomorrow night and uh, are bored tomorrow night, we'll, we'll worry about that then. Just, just really a few highlights uh, what Shekhinah means in, in the Kabbalah. Take a, take a look at this chart on the first page. This, you could say, is a picture of God. Now, that really is an impossible statement to make in Judaism. Remember, God is ultimately the white space, okay? Ein Sof, the infinite, which cannot be depicted, which stretches out in all directions. But because we're human beings, we need to somehow put a handle on God, give a name to God. And that's what we have here in the system of the 10 sifirot, 10 aspects of divinity. The final one of the 10 is called here Malchut, is her technical Kabbalistic name, but also known as Shekhinah. Shekhinah is one of the 10 sifirot, but being the last one, she includes all of them. And in terms of the inner life of God, there are really two main characters here. 
Tiferet, the central Sephirah, the masculine half, you might say, of God, and Malchut or Shekhinah. Tiferet is the masculine, Shekhinah or Malchut is the feminine. The goal of Judaism, according to Kabbalah, is to unite these two halves of God, to bring about the divine marriage, which is celebrated when? Every Shabbat. Every Friday evening is the wedding of God. That's why we sing traditionally one of the most beautiful prayers in the Siddur, L'Chadodi. L'Chadodi was composed by Kabbalists, by a Kabbalist who lived several hundred years after the Zohar, celebrating this divine wedding, celebrating the wedding of the Kodesh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, and Shekhinah. So how do we bring together these two halves of God? Really by living ethically, by living spiritually. According to Kabbalah, and I would say this is the, another great insight, one is that God is infinity, the other is that God, God's masculine descriptions have to be balanced by the feminine, and the third is that God needs us. God is incomplete without our active participation in the world. If we live ethically, if we live spiritually, what does it mean that we unite God? I would say we actualize God. God is potentially in the world, but it's up to us to make that potential actual by living a virtuous, righteous, spiritual, ethical life. If we live in a holy way, we bring out the divine potential in ourselves, in the world, in each other. And I think this explains one of the most beautiful names of Shekhinah in the Kabbalah. She's called Sod HaEfshar, the secret of the possible. That's a name for God in the Kabbalah, the secret of the possible. In other words, in, in some very deep sense, God is not yet real. God is waiting to be made real by our active participation. So in that sense, God needs us. I think I'm going to leave most of the rest about uh, Shekhinah for, for tomorrow night. What I'd like to turn to now is uh, to tell you a little bit of what I'm involved in in, in translating the Zohar and then to study a couple passages with you. I've been engaged in the past, uh, for the past 10 years in translating the Zohar. The Zohar, as I described, is this immense commentary on the Torah. In Aramaic, it's usually printed in about four volumes, but the English translation I'm working on will probably take 11 to 12 volumes. I've now completed four of them. The fourth will be published in October. Three of them we have here tonight. I would, I would counsel you against buying it <laughs> or against buying all three at once at least. Uh, the Zohar is, is a dense and immense work. I think it's one of the most profound books in Judaism, but it's intentionally difficult. It's really a kind of mystery story, the mystery of God's inner life, the mystery of how we can unite these two halves of God. How did I ever get involved in this project? Well. I'll tell you. About 12 years ago, I got a call from a friend of mine who told me about a woman in Chicago named Margot Pritzker of the Pritzker family. Margot Pritzker had been studying the Zohar with an Orthodox rabbi in Chicago, a man named Rabbi Yechiel Pupko, and they were using the old standard English translation, what's known as the Sonsino Zohar. It was written in the 1930s. It's not a bad book, but it's really not a translation. It's a paraphrase. The Zohar, as I said, is intentionally cryptic. 
the Zohar is erotic, the Zohar is difficult, and this English translation skipped the erotic passages, skipped over the difficult words, summarized and gave kind of really a paraphrase rather than a translation. Margot Pritzker was not satisfied with that, and Rabbi Pupko agreed, and they decided to commission a new translation. They approached me indirectly through a friend, and I was overwhelmed. I wrestled with that offer for some time, and then even before I ever met the Pritzkers, I decided to, to try it out. So I took a month off, and for one month I translated Zohar nonstop. After that month, I decided I am definitely not doing this. <laughs> it, just, it just was too draining. It was too exhausting. I felt my, my mind might uh, leave me. So I told the friend who had approached me on behalf of the Pritzkers that I was declining the offer, and he said, well, why don't you at least meet Margot Pritzker and tell her that? Foolishly, I agreed. <laughs> and somehow after meeting with her, in the midst of meeting with her, she said, look, if you did this, how long would it take? I said, at least 15 years. She said, you're not scaring me. And somehow hearing that from her, something in my mind clicked, and I, I walked out of the meeting and, and had agreed to to do it. So that's, I, I quit my teaching position. I was a tenured professor at a graduate school of religion in Berkeley. And I quit my position and, and for the last 10 years I've been translating Zohar about seven or eight hours a day. Let me very briefly describe my method. Originally, I planned to simply translate from the standard printed Zohar. As I said, the Zohar was written in Aramaic. It's usually printed in four volumes. And I thought that I would work from the standard printed edition, but I had access to manuscripts of the Zohar. In other words, original, not written by Moses de Leon, but it's copied by scribes, 14th century, 15th century. There are probably 600 manuscripts of the Zohar. These are strewn among various European libraries in Paris, Rome, the Vatican, London, uh, Munich. There's some manuscripts, many good manuscripts at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. There's a manuscript in Toronto. Somehow the manuscript in Toronto was actually owned by Shabbatai Tzvi. <laughs> Shabbatai Tzvi, the great messianic pretender of the 17th century, his own copy of the Zohar apparently is in a library at the University of Toronto. Others in Parma, Paris, various libraries around the world. I, all of these are available on microfilm in Jerusalem. The Jewish National University Library in, in Jerusalem has a special institute called the Institute of Microfilmed Hebrew Manuscripts. And they have on microfilm in one room, maybe about this, this size, 90% of all the, manuscript, all the Hebrew manuscripts in the world on microfilm. So I had access to these manuscripts. I thought that if I ran into a difficult passage where the printed text didn't make sense that I would look at some of the manuscripts. But once I began to open that Pandora's box, once I began to look at the manuscripts, I realized that I couldn't rely on the printed text at all because the manuscripts were better. Now, how could that be that the manuscripts were better than what became the printed book? Because what happened was over the centuries, every scribe who copied or edited the Zohar put in his two cents. He said, oh, no, no, he didn't mean this. He must have meant that. And then when the book was published, the editors also smoothed away some of the difficult Aramaic. If, there's a, if there was an invented word, they would tame it and try to, to record it in a, in a more recognizable 
Aramaic, uh, Aramaic style. So by relying on the original manuscripts, I've been able to eliminate many of these accumulated layers of scribal additions and scribal editing. I'm not claiming to, to restore, that I'm restoring the original text of the Zohar, because there may never have been a complete original text. What do I mean by that? The Zohar was probably composed section by section, one Torah portion at a time, and then passed around and copied and recopied. In fact, in the whole collection of Zohar manuscripts, there's no manuscript that covers the whole Zohar. There's only Zohar on Genesis in Paris, and then another manuscript in Rome, Zohar on Exodus. Different fragments. It was finally collated in the 16th century when it was published. But by going back to the manuscripts, I can scrape away some of those hundreds of years of scribal revision and editing and scribal errors, and at least approach the elusive hypothetical original text. In other words, in addition to translating the Zohar, I'm really reconstructing the original Aramaic text based on the medieval manuscripts. And it's this new ancient Aramaic text that serves as the foundation for the translation. By the way, we've made the Aramaic text available as a downloadable PDF file on the website of Stanford University Press. If you Google Stanford Zohar, you'll, you'll get there. But you have to pay for the English, but the Aramaic is free. <laughs> now, let me say a word about the translation and commentary itself. All translation is inherently inadequate. You might call it a well-intentioned betrayal. In the words of one Talmudic rabbi, Hamatargem pasuk ketsurato hareze badai, v'hamosifalav, one who translates a verse literally is a liar. One who adds to it is a blasphemer. This doesn't give you very good odds as a translator. <laughs> Furthermore, the Zohar is notoriously obscure, perhaps the most difficult Jewish classic to translate. Composed in Spain, mostly in Aramaic, but not only Aramaic, the Zohar is written by someone who didn't really know Aramaic. What am I saying? This is like trying to write something with your high school French. Okay? He knows Aramaic because he's read the Talmud, because he's read the Targum, the Aramaic translation of the Torah. But Aramaic was not a spoken language among Jews at this point. So his Aramaic is just what he knows from having read books. So there's a, common, there's a little bit of Babylonian Aramaic. There's some Palestinian Aramaic. There are invented words. Every few pages, he'll invent a word that's in no dictionary in the world. He'll take a rare word in the Talmud and switch around a couple letters just to make it difficult, just to be ornery. So the Zohar is prose, but really a prose that's poetic, overflowing with multiple connotations, composed in a way that you can't pin down the precise meaning of a phrase very often. The language fits the subject matter, mysterious, elusive, ineffable. Words can merely suggest and hint Sometimes we encounter oxymorons, one I've already mentioned, milin chadetin atikin, new ancient words, alluding to the dual nature of the Zohar secrets, recently composed but ascribed to ancient sources. Another example is the Zohar's description of the first impulse of the divine flow, 
Botsina de Cardinuta, a spark of impenetrable darkness, a spark of darkness, so bright that it can't be seen, its brilliance blinding the spiritual seeker. Through the centuries, the potency of the Zohar's language has mesmerized even those who could not plumb its secrets. While Kabbalists delved deeply, the unlearned chanted the lyrical Aramaic, often unaware of its literal meaning. In the words of one Kabbalist, even if you don't understand, the language is suited to the soul. No doubt it's risky to translate the Zohar, but it would be worse to leave these gems of wisdom buried in their ancient Aramaic vault. So I've plunged in, seeking to transmit at least some of the Zohar's magic. The older English translation composed in the 1930s reads smoothly, but often misunderstands the text. As I said, it's more a paraphrase than a real accurate translation. What I'm trying to do is to make the Zohar accessible, but I also want to convey its potency, its rich ambiguity. And here the commentary is essential. When the translation can't adequately express a multifaceted phrase, I try to unfold the range of meaning in the commentary. When you explore the Zohar, you're really combining linguistic search and spiritual search. These go hand in hand. You have to search for the meaning of words, but you also have to search deep inside to discover how possible meanings resonate within yourself. In writing the commentary, I've tried to keep in mind the wisdom of D.H. Lawrence. He said, quote, a book lives as long as it is unfathomed. Once it is fathomed, once it is known and its meaning is fixed or established, it's dead. So the commentary, in the commentary, I try to clarify the symbolism, the unique terminology, to identify sources in the Bible, in the Talmud, in the Kabbalah itself. I'm trying to draw out the meaning of the text without being too heavy-handed, without ruining the subtlety and ambiguity of the original. What I'd like to do now is to read you a brief passage from the Zohar, a very famous passage. This one is not on your sheets because I'd prefer that you simply sit and listen. If you feel comfortable, I'd ask you to close your eyes uh, in a minute and just listen to the opening passage of the Zohar on Genesis. Uh, before I read it, I want to give you a little, a little hint as to what it's about. Take a look again at uh, this chart of the Sefirotor. Have it out, and it will come handy in a moment. What we're looking at here is simply the opening words of the Torah. Okay, we all know those probably by heart, at least in English, if not in Hebrew. Bereshit, bara, Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Now, according to the Zohar, that's not what the phrase means. It's not in the beginning God created, because the Zohar loves to be what I would call hyper-literal. Let's look super literally at those three words. Bereshit, in the beginning, Bara, it created, he created, Elohim. In the beginning, it created God. That's how the Zohar reads the opening words of Genesis. Not in the beginning God created, rather Bereshit, in the beginning, Bara, it, namely Ein Sof, the infinite, the unnameable one, 
created. What did Ainsof create? God. Now that sounds heretical. What does this mean that God is created? God is the creator. I think what the Zohar is saying is that our understanding of God, our normal conception of God, is puny compared to the ultimate reality of God. So in the beginning, the infinite created what we think of as God. That's the Zohar's reading of, of the opening words of the Torah. The Zohar doesn't say it that way. The Zohar says it much more beautifully and cryptically and poetically, as I'll show in a moment. But look at this chart for a moment, because I want to show you how it matches up to what's here. The very highest sphirah is called keter, or crown. You might say a crown on the head of this, of this divine, human-like body. Chokhmah and Bina are the next two sefirot. Chokhmah meaning wisdom. In each case, by the way, the, the name of the sefirah in the circle is translated in small capital letters on the side. Okay, so Chokhmah on the top right means wisdom. Bina over on the left means understanding. Chokhmah is the father according to Kabbalah. Bina is the mother. There you also have a male and female couple within God. Now, Chokhmah, even though it's the second Sfirah, is called beginning. Why? Because Keter is almost too mysterious to even point to. Keter is beyond. Keter verges on Ein Sof. Remember, around all this is the ocean of infinity. Keter is the transition from infinity to these specific aspects of God. So the highest aspect, Keter, is so far beyond it can't even be called the beginning. The second sphere is called beginning. So that's the beginning of in the beginning. When the Zohar reads the verse in the Torah, Bereshit, it translates it not in the beginning, but B can also mean with. With beginning, the infinite created Elohim. And Elohim is a name for Bina. Bina, the divine mother, is called by the divine name Elohim. So the Zohar is reading it with beginning, the infinite created Elohim. Okay, now that you know the punchline, here is how the Zohar, this is how the Zohar says what I just said. I said it in one line, but the Zohar takes a page. So sit comfortably if you feel comfortable and if you think you won't fall asleep, close your eyes and just listen to the imagery. Don't worry here, you know, which sefirah and which word is which. We know basically where he's going to end up, Bereshit bara Elohim. But listen to the Zohar's poetry. Bereshit, in the beginning. At the head of potency of the king, he engraved engravings in luster on high. A spark of impenetrable darkness flashed within the concealed of the concealed from the head of infinity, a cluster of vapor forming in formlessness thrust in a ring, not white, not black, not red, not green, no color at all. As a cord surveyed, it yielded radiant colors. Deep within the spark gushed a flow, splaying colors below, concealed within the concealed of the mystery of Ein Sof. It split and did not split its aura, was not known at all, until under the impact of splitting, a single concealed supernal point shone. Beyond that point, nothing is known. So it is called Reshit, beginning, first command of all. 
The enlightened will shine like the Zohar of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Zohar, radiance, concealed of concealed, struck its aura, which touched and did not touch this point. Then this beginning expanded, building itself a palace worthy of glorious praise. There it sowed seed to give birth, benefiting worlds. Zohar, radiance, sowing seed for its glory, like the seed of fine purple silk, wrapping itself within, weaving itself a palace, constituting its praise, benefiting all. With this beginning, the unknown concealed one created the palace. This palace is called Elohim, God. The secret is Bereshit, bara Elohim. With beginning, created God. I don't want to leave you stranded there in the stratosphere. So let's uh, close this portion of the talk with uh, a short parable from the Zohar, which you have with you on, on the last page. This is a little story that comes uh, somewhere in the middle of the Zohar. And I think it's a story about how to study Torah, or maybe how not to study Torah. There was a man who lived in the mountains. He knew nothing about living in the city. He sowed wheat and ate the kernels raw. One day he entered the city. They offered him good bread. The man asked, what's this for? They replied, it's bread to eat. He ate and it tasted very good. He asked, what's it made of? They answered, wheat. Later, they offered him thick loaves kneaded with oil. He tasted them and asked, what are these made of? They answered, wheat. Later, they offered him royal pastry kneaded with honey and oil. He asked, what are these made of? They answered, wheat. He said, surely I am the master of all of these, since I eat the essence of all of these, wheat. Because of that view, he knew nothing of the delights of the world, which were lost on him. So it is with one who grasps the principle, but is unaware of all those delectable delights, deriving, diverging from that principle. Maybe we should stop there. <laughs>